Welcome to Talking Acoustics. This episode features luthier Trevor Gore. There's something slightly contradictory about guitars. They're often aligned with progressive social movements and music. However, their design has not changed significantly for 80 years, and the physics behind their function is not well understood, including the many who design them. There's a similar contradiction with Trevor Gore as well. He builds guitars by hand, mostly without power tools, in a tiny timber shack on the edge of a river, looking out on nothing but untouched trees and water. It's the setting for an arcane craftsman, but Trevor uses a background in engineering to delve into the physics of the instrument and push the design of the acoustic guitar into the 21st century. His guitars don't look very different, but under the skin they're built differently, and most importantly, they sound different. Trevor is not holding onto his secrets though. He travels around the world delivering workshops on guitar building and modal tuning and published a two-volume book on guitar design and construction. The 800-page Contemporary Acoustic Design and Build is the most in-depth look at the physics behind the instrument and its application to designers and builders and was co-written with the veteran of Australian guitar building, Gerard Gillet. I've built a few guitars myself and I'm fascinated by the interplay of physics, engineering, craftsmanship and art that goes into musical instruments. So I was excited to catch up with Trevor. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. So thanks uh, Trevor Gore for joining me. No worries, Matt. Um, So when did you first show an interest in instrument design? Well, I guess it goes back to when I was about age six and my father was a guitar player. Though he didn't play very much when I was at that age. And I found an old guitar of his in the attic. It was a copy of a Gibson L5. Unfortunately, it wasn't a real Gibson L5. It was a copy of a Gibson L5 by S.S. Stewart. And I remember opening the box the case of that and looking at it and seeing this gleaming instrument with strings on it which made fascinating noises and I thought I want to get into that of course I couldn't play a damn thing at that time but it always fascinated me and I sort of grew up with that guitar and learned to play on that guitar and even turned it into a nylon string guitar and an electric guitar one of my first mods was taking some ex-World War II headsets earphone sets army surplus and reversing those and using those as a contact mic on the guitar and feeding the output through a little transistor radio that I'd built and that was my first electric guitar so to speak so that was that started a long time ago and uh, <clears throat> and this is in England I'm guessing this was, this, was, this, this was in England yeah so this is uh, uh, Manchester area of England at that time <clears throat> Actually, no, it wasn't. That was Preston area in that time, Preston Langs. Um, then played a bit uh, over the years. Uh, had this mixed interest of music and boats, as well as a professional interest by profession. I'm an engineer, probably gathered. <clears throat> so what sort of engineer are you by profession? Um, when I, my first degree was at uh, Durham University, and that was a deg- degree called Engineering Science, and that covered uh, electrical, mechanical, civil, thermofluids, 
really wide aspect. So it's almost a triple degree yeah. in engineering. We had, uh, I think it was something like uh, 28 timetabled hours a week, which meant Saturday morning lectures and goodness knows what else, which was like <laughs> 10 times as many lectures as anybody else got. And, you know, it's a fairly tough degree, but we got through it. And coming out at the end of that, um, I got into biomechanics. I'd, I'd always sort of fancied maybe being a medic rather than an engineer. Unfortunately, when, when the engineering route. I don't think I have the uh, personality to deal with people that much to be a, a medic. But went into biomechanics at that stage and was looking at uh, artificial hip joints and motion of hips. And so my PhD was actually in the kinematics of normal and pathological hip joints, which was the lubrication mm. regimes and hip joints and hip joint movement. And then... Uh, Postdoc, I spent a few years in Cambridge teaching uh, maths and electromagnetism and other stuff, and doing more um, biomechanics research uh, on equipment for dealing with brain injuries. At that stage, then went um, back into full-time mechanical engineering, which was with a company called David McKee, who made rolling mills, and uh, they were based down in Poole. Uh, down on the south coast and I went down there as much as anything to satisfy my sailing requirements because I was sailing and racing boats a lot at that stage and uh, I went down to Liverpool mm. and from there one of our jobs was uh, fixing up a, a, a contract that had gone a bit awry over here in Sydney and um, every time I came over the guys here were saying well why don't you stay why don't you stay and eventually I ran out of excuses so came over on a two-year secondment in 1990 and sort of missed the bus back home. So been here ever since. It's a good place to stay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's sort of colourful trip through various professions. And then uh, <clears throat> in Australia, did a, I'll cut a long story short, did various things, but got back into guitars again and um, bought an old guitar to play on the boat. It's the boat you see out the back there. And guitars and boats don't generally mix, so this was a, a sort of second-hand um, Suzuki Triple S guitar, which was a copy of a, uh, a Martin, um, what, Style 41 guitar. Are, it's like quite an ornate... Uh... Yeah, but the ornate was plastic rather than cool, <laughs> but it was like $300 or something. And um, <clears throat> the, the Japanese had copied it to the extent of putting the bridge in the wrong place, like a lot of 70s Martins did. They had the bridge about three millimetres out from where it should have been, which is why they all played so appallingly out of tune. And eventually figured this, and uh, after two or three weeks of playing it on the weekends, playing it on the boat, and thought, hmm, how can I fix this? And... Uh, Having already built a few boats, the woodworking skills were there, so that didn't really worry me too much. It was just a case of, do I have enough room to move the saddle back before it drops into the bridge pinholes? Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a little computer program to figure that out. And as it turns out, yes, I did have just enough room to move it back. So I uh, <coughs> routed, rerouted the saddle slot, put a new saddle in, 
and it intonated sort of okay yeah. on the 12th fret in the open string. And then, as research engineers tend to do, they sort of ask themselves the question, well, <clears throat> I wonder how in tune it plays on all the other frets. And uh, knowing intrinsically, as most guitarists do, that most guitars play quite a way out of tune on the other frets, especially on the frets near the nut. And so <clears throat> I thought, okay, let's uh, let's model that and see how that works out. And it showed that frets play, uh, sorry, that guitars play out of tune on the first few frets. And I thought, okay, well, where do the frets have to go to make it play in tune? And that was an interesting little exercise because what it showed was that the frets had to be in different places for each string because each string goes out of tune mm. a different amount mm-hmm. um, when it's fretted and gives you the intonation problem. And I sort of looked at this for a while and drew a few graphs and I thought, well, hang on. <clears throat> All the fret spacing stayed the same between the frets for the same scale. If all the fret spacing stays the same for all the strings, even though the frets are actually in different places. So it's like slicing your fretboard into six pieces and shuffling the frets Mm -hmm. relative to each other. I thought, well, if that's the case, we can shuffle them all back in line and move the string relative to the fretboard. Mm -hmm. And that's not in saddle compensation. Yeah. And that's how I came across Nut and Saddle Compensation. And I thought, oh, this is a great invention, not realising that it had been invented about 100 years, at least prior. (laughs) And I thought, okay, well, how do I know that that's going to work? So I did a bit of messing around with a Stratocaster with the adjustable saddles and thought, oh, yeah, yeah, that looks about right. Um, I thought, well, can I change this acoustic guitar, this old Suzuki Triple S thing that I have? I thought... It'd actually be easier to change, make a new guitar, build a new guitar, than actually try to chop this one around. So that's when I built the first guitar to check out that intonation idea. Yeah, right. And the rest, as they were saying, is So what, what, when was that, in the 90s? Yeah, that was in the mid-90s. So I, I did a lot of work on the intonation stuff through probably from, you know, on a casual basis from 91, 92 through till uh, 97, 98. Yeah. And then decided, let's build a guitar. So I built my first guitar in 98. And you said you've been building, <clears throat> you built some boats. Were they yeah. wooden boats? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you had, had all the uh, bending timber type skills required. Yeah, it's a different form of bending. and uh, <laughs> in, Probably not bending anything as thin as the yeah you don't set, the boats I was building at that time the the it's plywood construction those boats were plywood construction and it was uh, bent cold so it was just a case of bending it round a form you build yeah. yourself basically a frame and then bend, bend the panels around that mm-hmm. and uh, oh you've got enough screws into hold it all bent whilst the glue sets remember middle of one night and um, I'd made all the frames out of cedar on this particular boat to get the uh, get the mass down and it was screwing into cedar. <clears throat> because there's so much force bending these panels, the screws were pulling out. And so the panels were sort of springing off. I was screwing them down and I was sort of getting a bit panicky because the, the glue was already going off on the flat end of the panel where it started. 
and uh, ended up having to basically dismantle the car to scan every nut and bolt I could find to hold it down <laughs> whilst, whilst the glue set. <laughs> Drill through. So before we dive <clears throat> too much into the guitar, yeah. um, for listeners who are not guitarists or not familiar with the guitar, yeah. you've got a set of strings on a guitar body. Yeah. You've got the neck of the guitar, which has the, the frets yeah. on the fretboard. You've got a nut, which is what the strings pass over at the top, the, the head end of the neck. Yep. And you've got a saddle that they sit on, which is sitting on a bridge yep. on the body. Correct. You've got uh, the top of the guitar, which is the top of the body, which is yep. basically the plate that's moving. Yep, the soundboard. The soundboard, yep. Um, you've got bent sides and a... A back which is not flat, but it's uh, yep. relatively flat from relative to, flat. To, to to the eye. Yep. Um, I think that covers the main components. Yeah. Um, can you explain how the guitar works as a sound source? <laughs> because you pluck the strings. I mean, that's the way it's played. You you use your generally left hand to fret the strings and you use your right hand to pluck or strum the strings to put some energy into them. Yep. But that's not what you hear when, when you sit back and listen. Okay. So how does it make the noise? Well, it's a very long story and <clears throat> uh, nobody was giving me decent answers when I was asking that question years ago. And you get all sorts of weird explanations which listening to them as an engineer, you just say, well, that cannot be possible. And so I went actually looking for how guitars produce sound. We'll start with the string. The string vibrates, as uh, most people know, and that produces a force on the bridge. And the interesting thing about that force on the bridge, uh, there's two components of it. There's a component that's perpendicular to the soundboard, and there's a component that's parallel to the soundboard in line with the string. And the component that's perpendicular to the soundboard is essentially the transverse vibration of the string. The tension in that string, which oscillates through some angle as it vibrates, and is the, it is the transverse angle that makes the sine of that transverse angle multiplied by the tension which applies a force to the soundboard. Now, the way a string vibrates most people look at it and think of it as being fairly smooth curves. If you look at it hard under a um, slow-mo camera, what you actually find is that the angle at the end of the string stays constant. It has two positions, plus alpha and minus alpha. And as the string is released from the pluck in the center, the wave goes to each end of the string then reflects from the terminations. And as that uh, wave travels from one end of the string to the other, the angle the string makes is constant until you get the point of reflection of the waves. And then the angle inverts and it comes back at you. So to get a standing wave, any standing wave, it takes two waves crossing each other and interfering to produce a standing wave. Mm, okay. And so the actual motion of the string as it, as it, from the initial pluck, it's pulled aside from the center to a triangle type shape. Yeah. 
where the peak of the triangle is at the centre of the plug. You release it, <clears throat> and the deformation of the string comes down actually parallel to the rest position of the string. So there's a flat that moves down, and the angle at the end stays constant. Yeah. Then as it goes through the rest position, it's moving the, the, the transverse velocity of the string is a maximum. It moves through that. The angle switches at the end, and it goes out to a peak on the other side. If you convert that to, well, what's the force acting on the soundboard? It is that single angle plus a minus alpha multiplied by the tension in the string, and it's the sign of that, it's the force on it. So the, the string force driving the soundboard is actually a square wave. Okay. If you have a pluck in the center, and it's a rectangular wave if you pluck off center in the string. That's one of the string forces, and that pumps the soundboard up and down. And so it's, the, it's going. So the strings vibrating over the bridge, uh, over the, the the saddle, which is exerting a force on the bridge, which is glued to the top. Yeah. And so it's making the top. Yeah. Go up. So and the, down. the the string. Uh, imagine it being terminated at the saddle. Yeah. Effectively, it is. Yeah. Um, it's got a tension on it. To pull it up to its in-tune uh, tension. Yes, yeah. It uh, changes angle because you plucked it. Yeah. And the transverse vector of that, the sign of the tension in the string multiplied by the angle it goes through, and that transverse vector acts perpendicular to the axis of the string, which could be either parallel or perpendicular to the soundboard. The one that makes the most noise is the one that's perpendicular. perpendicular. To the it's the one that's parallel. Rocks it's, it. It's, it rocks it, but it's not inducing an up and down motion Correct. in the top. Because yeah. the top really acts like a, almost like a cone of a speaker in that it's a vibrating element. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. So, so that's one of the forces that acts on the, uh, on the soundboard. The other force is a sort of uh, secondary force. As the string itself swings about, as it swings to the maximum extent of its excursion, it increases in tension mm -hmm. because the path is greater. Yeah. So it produces a tension on the saddle in line with the axis of the string. So that rocks the saddle backwards and forwards, and it rocks it at twice the frequency of the string oscillation. Twice the fundamental frequency of the string because oh, it's rocking. Yeah. Because there's one ten, there's, there's one tug on it in the up and one tug on the yeah. down. So you get a, a, a signal from that at twice the natural frequency of the string, mm. which induces a what we call a long dipole motion in the top. Now some people think it's the tugging of the saddle like that that induces most of the sound in the guitar. But it clearly isn't because otherwise you'd only get the uh, octave right. rather than the fundamental yeah. Yeah. The string. Yeah. Mm. So that's how a string drives a soundboard. Yeah. Or puts a force on a soundboard in order it for, to, for it to drive. You've then got how the soundboard itself moves. Now it's easy to think of it moving as a sort of bellows type assembly, like a like loudspeaker kind, mm -hmm. but that's not actually what's happening. What's actually happening is a two-dimensional wave in a panel. 
So it's like dropping a, a rock in a pool of water to get a wave traveling out. Now, there's a thing called a coincident frequency, which all the acousticians listening to this will understand what it means. But its importance in guitar design is that up to about four and a half kilohertz, the wave propagating across the soundboard will not produce a propagating sound wave from it, a radiating sound wave from it. So the only thing below four and a half kilohertz that produces sound is the standing wave modes in the top. Okay, so you've got a wave traveling out, hits the sides, the linings reflects back, and you get a standing wave in the top, just like you get the string. And these can be visualized in two bad dimensions on the top by using clapping patterns, which is a technique for sprinkling sawdust or tea leaves on the top and looking for the natural modes of vibration at the top. <clears throat> and there's a series of these that go at the frequency range. Because it will vibrate as, as the frequency that you drive the top app changes. Yep. The mm. modes and the shape of the modes or the vibrating modes across the top are changing. It's a change, correct. Yep. And it is the patching together of those different modes driven at the varying frequency of the string that actually produces the sound. So it's not actually working like a piston because it's working more like a two-dimensional string. It's a wave that mm. goes across, comes back, and so it does this sort of like a string pumps sort of like a piston but actually that's more of an optical illusion because of the two waves that form the reflected two waves and the standing wave as a consequence so we've imparted energy into the string the yep. strings driving the top yep. up and down yep. but there's also this hole in the top as well Correct. and you've got a volume of air a sealed volume of air in the body of the guitar so what does that do to the uh, Okay, at the <clears throat> at the low end of the frequency range, um, well, let's go back one more step. For a guitar to sound reasonable, you want it to sound like it has a reasonable frequency response over the range of the frequencies that the string produce. And above about um, two hundred hertz or so, most of that sound is produced by the varying modes in the top patching together to give a sort of quasi-even response. Below about 200 hertz, there's only uh, there's the tail end of the top resonance, the main top resonance, which is the uh, 200 hertz peak tailing off down towards zero hertz. And then the next resonance below that is the main air resonance, which is the resonance formed by the air inside the guitar and the sound hole. So that works. <coughs> like a Helmholtz resonator, but not quite like a Helmholtz resonator. The difference being that in the classic Helmholtz resonator, the, the vessel walls are rigid. In a guitar, of course, they're not, mm. they're flexible. And so that has the effect on a Helmholtz resonator of actually reducing the resonant frequency because of the soft walls. Mm. And so that gives a resonant frequency of the guitar body of typically somewhere between 90 and 100 hertz for the main air resonant frequency of the guitar. And that fills you in uh, in that lower octave between 100 and 200 hertz in the frequency response mm -hmm. of the guitar. 
in in all of that, you've got a few other things going on because you've got a couple between the string and the top to drive the soundboard. You've got a couple between the air in the box and the um, and the top of the guitar because that's they're all moving sympathetically. So yeah. you've got two resonators: the top resonator and the air as a resonator. Mm -hmm. And you've got the back in there as well, and you've got the sides in there as well. So you've got a, a stack of basically four coupled resonators, not including the strings at this point, which all interact somewhat like the bass reflex behavior of a loudspeaker, mm -hmm. complicated by having floppy sides. <laughs> I saw a good demo of this recently with, right. a, with a, um, a plastic water bottle. Oh, yeah. And you blow in it and get the tone. And squeeze it. And then you squeeze it and crunch it all up and yeah. release it. Yeah. And you blow the tone again and the tone drops. Oh, you, the tone disappears. Because you, well, yeah, well, maybe. No, the, but the, the, I first if, saw if you, this yeah. demonstrated by a guy called uh, Professor Tom Rossing, who's a professor of acoustics at Stanford University. Yeah, okay. And he showed me this and <clears throat> he... he what what he used it to demonstrate was the fact that if you don't have a rigid vessel, you don't have a resonant chamber. Mm. So he blew in the bottle, then crushed it because yeah. the shape was now no longer rigid because it yeah. didn't have any form rigidity. You didn't have a vessel, basically, yeah. so yeah. you couldn't yeah. get a resonance out of it. But likewise, if you do have a rigid vessel and fill it up with beer or water or whatever, you change the pitch of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, the, the guitar as an instrument... Mm -hmm. is one that is um, associated with a lot of socially progressive um, mm -hmm. movements in terms of, you know, jazz and rock and roll yep. and all sorts of things. Yep. But the predominant design of the acoustic guitar, a lot of the acoustic guitars you'll find in a shop now mm -hmm. date from sort of the mid-1930s. Yes. So there, there's yes. certainly a, certainly a interest in building acoustic guitars that fit a sort of, sort of 1930s mm. Martin Dreadnought style. Yeah, probably more so in electrics, actually, because in electrics, everybody says, <laughs> you know, the kids of the day just play their father's guitars, which yeah. is essentially true because yeah. it's all Les Pauls and uh, Strats and Tellys and stuff, and there's not that much new stuff around. Yeah. And... It is difficult to, you can't really change the acoustics too much on an acoustic guitar. It is what it is. You can't even change the body shapes because they don't sell. So everybody's still after J200s, J45s, uh, Gibson double O's, triple O's, and D's. And that's about it. Yeah. And, you know, there's other body shapes around, but they are pretty hard to sell in bulk. People always go back to those original. Well, why do you think that is? Why do you think that the design of an of a instrument that's used in a quite progressive context, and certainly the repertoire that is played on mm. an instrument that you purchased in twenty eighteen, is likely going to be pretty different to the repertoire played on a nineteen in the nineteen thirties if you if you'd walked out of a shop with one. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a very tough question to answer. Uh, I mean, it's, that's more of a sociological question than an acoustic <laughs> question, I think. But, uh, and I think it's something to do with uh, the sounds people grew up with and what a proper guitar is and what that represents in the sort of social fabric of the of the country. But 
you know, <clears throat> you've only got to look on the wall here and see a few different shaped guitars mm. and just to demonstrate that there are different ways of doing things. Yeah. And you we'll play some of them later and, you know, they sound like fine acoustic guitars. And <clears throat> very few of the ones on the wall are uh, are X-braced. Very few of them are the traditional Martin X-braced and mm. they're all braced in different ways. So... You know, once you get away from the body shape thing, the X-brace thing, you can more or less do what you like and demonstrate that it's actually uh, much more possible out there than the guitar manufacturers will give you. And <clears throat> it's one of the things I call in my lectures the conspiracy against guitarists because they're only about half as good as they could be in terms of the sound output they generate and how in tune they play and the musicality mm -hmm. of the instrument and goodness knows what else. So the conspiracy against guitarists is that what you see in a store is only about half as good as what they can do. Mm. So let's let's talk about bracing for a minute. Yep. So we have the, the soundboard of the guitar, the top yep. of the body, and that's made out of a thin piece of spruce or a, or a light... Yep. Very light but <clears throat> stiff yep. piece of wood, but it's only a millimetre or, or two thick. Yep. And we're exerting huge amounts of force on it with the tension of the strings yep. that are wanting to pull it apart, basically. Yep. So underneath the top, there are braces of timber, yep. traditionally basically straight, generally straight pieces of timber that yep. come out from the, the bridge or cross over underneath the bridge and give structural strength to the top, but they perform more than just a structural um, job, don't they? Uh, yes, they do. Um, perhaps less so than you might think. I mean, yes, they, they're there for structural purposes. Clearly, the, um, the volume you can get out of a guitar, the loudness you can get out of a guitar is proportional to the acceleration of the guitar top. Now, everybody uses the same motor. Everybody uses very similar strings. Yep. So you haven't got any more motor to drive this. So your force is limited. So if you want more acceleration, you've got to reduce the mass of the top. And the guitar is a... It's not like a bowed instrument where you can impart a lot of energy into the string. Correct. You're, yep. you're limited with a pluck or a... Yeah, your pluck is all yeah. you've got, and there you go. And... It, and apparently, I've never measured this, it's, it's supposedly a pretty efficient instrument, about 5% efficient or something like that, which is a lot more efficient than something like a violin, apparently at about 1% efficient. Mm -hmm. But I don't quite know those, and I've never measured them. So it is quite, uh, quite efficient. So what you're trying to achieve in your bracing is basically keep the mass down where most of the mass is in the top panel but most of the stiffness and strength is actually in the bracing. So if you can make a panel thinner, you get a lot more weight reduction than you can if reducing the bracing. So there's all the, always this trade-off between how much wood you have in the panel and how much wood you have in the bracing. And you trade that off to a certain extent. Then you've got a problem uh, with wood over the long term. Wood is best described as a sort of viscoelastic material in that over time it will cold creep. That means it will take a permanent set, a permanent deformation. 
if it's kept under load for a long time, which is what happens with guitars under string load. Mm. And so the the guitar will tend to swallow itself in that the bridge will disappear into the sound hole. And that's pretty terminal for a guitar. So you end up having to put enough wood in, in there in terms of the bracing to prevent that from happening, to keep the stress level in the wood down so that you don't get too much cold creep or you just keep the cold creep uh, within controllable limits. And then you can use carbon fibre, which doesn't creep, which means you can use a lot less wood in your bracing. And the carbon fibre is not there to make the bracing stiff, although it does that, of course. It's there to stop the creep, because it means you can take a lot of the wood that's in the bracing out to use carbon fibre. So that's the way of getting... When you, some... when you say use carbon fibre yep. in the bracing, so you're using both timber and carbon fibre together? Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, a, yeah, it's a composite brace, yeah. Okay. And is that yeah. is sort of sandwiched together, or how, how does that...? Well, there's a number of different ways of doing it. Um, and there's a new... You, you typically don't even have to use wood in there. You could use polyurethane foam if you can find something with the correct shear stress in there. But basically, you, <clears throat> you can put a... Uh, a layer of carbon tow, that's a, basically a set of carbon threads pulled out of carbon through cloth, lay that down beneath the brace, glue the brace on top, and then put carbon fibre on top of the brace. So you've got this brace that's essentially a sandwich top and bottom with carbon fibre, which forms a sort of I-beam, mm-hmm. if you like. So it's structurally pretty sound, <clears throat> a lot lower mass than, uh, than an old wood brace. You just need enough wood material to separate the carbon fibre strands of sufficient strength to take the shear stresses that are in there. Mm. Right. So that gets you down to now a relatively low mass top. And then, so from a structural point of view, it's it's holding together. Then the next question is, well, what can you do with the bracing to change the modes of vibration? Because you've got to change one of those relatively few modes of vibration that we talked about earlier, but in a different place, different frequency, different center frequency, um, <clears throat> different bandwidth, different cue, uh, different amplitude. That's what changes the tone of a guitar. So you say, okay, <clears throat> what can we do to mess around with that? And uh, there's a bit you can do, but the thing about guitars is that uh, an unbraced panel tends to vibrate in well-defined modes and they're generally symmetric. And when you brace it, you've got to do something quite extraordinary to make it vibrate in fundamentally different ways. So the mode shapes will largely be the same. So, for example, if you wanted to create an asymmetric mode or a diagonal mode, you have to put in sufficient wood in there to create a node at those points. Mm-hmm. If you put that amount of wood in there, you've added a lot of stiffness and a lot of mass in order to force that mode, which generally locks up your guitar top and doesn't mm-hmm. perform as, as well as it should. So if you want to go asymmetric as something that a panel won't sort of naturally do, you end up having to apply too much wood and t- stiffness in there to make it do that, which is generally not advantageous. So you want to try and work to a degree with in sympathy with the with the 
top um, <clears throat> in, in its sort of natural modes of vibration. Um, but space those modes so that they form a reasonably even distribution because it's only those modes remember, that are producing the sound. So you want the space to be a reasonable sort of a way to give you a fairly smooth sort of response out of your guitar. So most of the bracing is to do with um, structure and uh, you can mess around with it to uh, do something with the sound. But if you look at things like um, Martin X bracing or Gibson X bracing, which is very similar. And that's that's just referring to the shape of the bracing underneath it the is, top. Yeah, it it's sort of, a, sort of looks like a cross. Yeah, two bits of wood yeah. which are crossed with a joint. Um, then there's two lower face braces which are asymmetric. Um, if you make those braces big enough and close enough together, you can force a, a diagonal dipole uh, with a node along the line of those braces, along the line of the lower face braces. And that's actually what gives J45s, for example, their distinctive sound. Close couple tapered braces there that force a diagonal mode at that point. That's why J45s, proper J45s, sound like proper J45s. And is that, by having that mm. diagonal mode, yep. is that at a lower frequency than? No, that's at a higher frequency than the main top resonance. So it'll typically come in around 240 hertz where the main top resonance is somewhere around about 200 hertz. Okay. So it gives it more of a mid-range mid punch than you get out mm -hmm. of a Dreadnought, for example, Yeah, okay. which is uh, which sort of has a scoot mid-range in its frequency response. You have, <clears throat> you have bass from the big box, you have treble because it's fairly tightly built, and you have this scoop in the mid-range. Mm. Whereas the range, mid range is sort of filled in more with a J45. Okay. So X bracing is the traditional uh, mainstay for yep. the guitar industry? In steel string guitars. In steel string guitars, yeah. Yep. Um, now, you've developed a different, quite a different bracing pattern. Falcate? Yep. Falcate bracing. Falcate bracing. Yeah. Can you? talk about what that is um ex explain uh it's a bit hard to explain uh yeah well, what it looks like without <clears throat> picture but um falcate uh the word means sickle shaped so it's uh, the braces are curved which straight away is a departure from the straight lines that virtually every other bracing system used <clears throat> and the inspiration from that actually came from looking at uh sales um the sort of uh generation of sales which probably came out around the, the early ones about the early 80s and the first of these were designed by a guy called Ulmer Colius what he did was uh, get some tapes made out of uh, Kevlar I think it was and just stitch them those tapes to a conventional sail along the main stress lines of the sail the main stress lines on the, on the sail if you imagine a triangular foresail on a boat they go from the corners into the middle and out to the corners and mm -hmm. sort of curve from corner to corner yeah. of a triangular sail and look remarkably similar to the sort of shape of bracing I use. That's, <clears throat> that's sort of where the inspiration came from. The sort of thinking behind it is that, well, you know, he's putting these tapes in these particular places on a sail so the sail, sail shape stays stable as the wind strength increases. 
because sails stretch and stretch mm. out of shape. Generally, you want a sail to be flatter as the wind strength gets larger, and they do the exact reverse. Mm. As the material stretches, the sail gets fuller, you have more camber in the wing, you have more lift, which you do not want. Right. As, as the wind strength gets high, you want less lift out of the sail. Yeah. So the idea of the, uh, of the tapes was to control the uh, stress on the sail, stop it stretching, keep the sail shape under control. So the crux of the matter is, well, put your bracing where the stresses are, and then you can use the minimum amount of bracing in there to take the maximum amount of load and dissipate the stress as far as spread it out and dump it across the soundboard and sort of dilute it as far as you can. So that's the idea behind the Falcate brakes. And when you talk about the, the main stresses on the top, are you mm-hmm. talking about the the, stru- the static structural stress of the string pull? Yep. Yeah. Yep. The main stresses by a country mile come from the static tension of the strings. Yeah. As you pluck them, the increasing tension due to plucking, plucking is almost negligible yep. in comparison, like 1% or something, yep. probably less than that. And, uh, and so basically you're about looking after the static stresses in the guitar top because that appears as a torque under the bridge um, because it's the total string tension multiplied by the saddle height off the top is a torque on the top mm-hmm. and that's basically the set of forces you're trying to resist so you've got uh, <clears throat> a sort of uh, humping uh, torque on the uh, behind the bridge and a hollowing torque in front of mm. the bridge and um, <clears throat> You've got to try and resist that to keep the guitar uh, more or less in one piece, more in a piece, flat plane. In a flat plane, <laughs> people generally don't like roller coaster shaped guitars. <laughs> they don't play very well. Yeah. So essentially, what you've got to try and do is just uh, dump that torque over as much area of the soundboard as you can, sort of as quickly as you can and as efficiently as you can, using as least material as you mm-hmm. can. And you can do that a lot better with something that follows the major stress directions rather than mm. the sort of more, more or less random pattern that you get out of cross-bracing, next-bracing. Mm. Mm. So that's, that's what that was. And the, the, the whole idea behind that was to demonstrate, well, there are different ways of doing this, more efficient ways of, stri- of uh, bracing a soundboard. And whether or not it worked uh, was just... So, something else. As it turned out, it, uh, if you refine it a bit and do a few other things, it worked remarkably well. To the fact, to the effect that it just totally eclipses what you can achieve with a traditional X-ray soundboard. And are you talking about in terms of efficiency and that you can get more volume and projection yeah, out of that? Yeah, I should be able to demonstrate that to you yeah, later okay. if, you, if you want. Yeah. yeah. Um, now we've talked about the the, the modes across the top. Yeah. Um, can you? Do you have any control over that beyond the shape? And we've talked about the brace. Can you um, manipulate or tune yes. those modes? <clears throat> yes, you can. And that's what modal tuning is about, of yeah. course. And uh, so, for example, if you uh, <clears throat> have a guitar, built a guitar, any guitar. It will always have a main top mode sitting typically somewhere around 200 hertz, anywhere from 170 to 240, depending on what you do, but typically somewhere around 200 hertz. And 
for a number of different reasons, which I won't get into at this point, you want to tune that to a specific frequency. And uh, it's usually easier to drop the frequency from what it's built at rather than increase the frequency. So to drop the frequency, you can just add mass to the bridge and uh, just because the natural frequency is proportional to the square root of the stiffness over the mass, if you add the mass, the frequency reduces. So if you grab a set of brass bridge pins, for example, and replace your plastic or bone bridge pins with brass, brass bridge pins, you've added a lot of mass to the bridge and that will reduce its natural frequency. If you reduce stiffness under the bridge by shaving braces and reduce the section, you will reduce the stiffness. And reducing the stiffness and increasing the mass has the same effect of reducing the natural frequency of that mode. So you can tune modes by differentially adding mass and uh, stiffness or reducing mass and stiffness to different places on mm -hmm. the guitar top. And how does that look in... So that's that's the... There's the theoretical modes and, and mm -hmm. what you want to do with them. How does that actually work in practice in your build? It works, it works very well. Do, I mean, do you, do you build the top and put braces on and do you, do you measure the modes? Do you, do you measure them with the vibration of them or, the, or an audio signal? or How, how does that? Well, I, I have a set of computer programs which I wrote which tells me how thick to make a top yep. to vibrate at certain frequencies. And then... Uh, is that dependent on the... Obviously dependent on the material in terms of... Yeah, it's it to no, vary it's, a lot from piece of timber to piece of timber because it's not a... It's not like a steel or aluminium where you... Correct, yeah. <laughs> and one of the problems with wood is that its material properties are very variable. And it's, it's very, a great very, problem and the great advantage of it. Yeah, it's, it's very variable both within species and across species. Yeah. So pick up any piece of spruce, um, any nominally good piece of spruce, uh, and then pick up another, and that could easily have getting on for 50% high density and double the stiffness. Mm. So if you build a guitar to constant physical dimensions, constant linear dimensions always make the top 2.3 millimetres thick, you're guaranteeing a recipe for variability mm. unless you're measuring material properties of that wood and making sure that they're always the same. For every piece of for wood, for every guitar. Wood. Yeah. yeah. The other way around looking at that is to measure the material properties, the Young's modulus along and across the grain, the um, torsional uh, stiffness of the sample, G of book modulus um, and its density and then you can put that into a formula and that will tell you a formula developed by a guy called Human who worked uh, for the RAF back in 1930 something designing panels for Spitfires or whatever he was doing uh, not Spitfires, probably mosquitoes I think they were the wooden ones um, and he was working out the natural frequencies of orthotropic panels Orthotropic means it's got different properties along and across, which is what wood has because it's mm. a lot stiffer along the grain than it is across the grain. So 
if you know Young's modulus, uh, the various Young's moduli and the density, you can figure out the natural frequency that a panel vibrates at, and you can use that in designing a guitar and reverse those equations to tell you how thick to make every panel, depending on its measured material properties. So that sort of pretty well controls that aspect of it. <clears throat> Likewise with the back panel, and by knowing, measuring your brace material, you can do the same with your braces. So when you box the guitar up, you've got a pretty good idea that it's going to land where you want it to land, but it rarely lands exactly where you mm. want it to land, so you've then got to trim it in from there. And there's uh, myriad ways of doing that, depending on which particular mode it is that you want to trim. A lot of them are concerned with adding mass and stiffness to the actual components, but a, a secondary way of doing it is adding mass or stiffness to a component that couples with that component. Mm. So, for example, if I want to drop the natural frequency of the top, one way of doing that is by adding mass to the sides. Sorry, say that again. <laughs> so if you want to change the natural frequency of the top of the guitar, yeah. one way of doing that is by adding mass to the sides. Right? <clears throat> and certainly not intuitive as to why that would work. But I, I came across this effect uh, years ago when I was tapping a guitar to measure its natural frequency at the top. And I put it back in its building mould, which is a heavy lump of wood which forms the outside shape of the guitar and tapped it again. And all the natural frequencies were different. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. Why is that happening? Took it out of the mould and got exactly what I had before. So the mould was doing something at the natural frequencies. Now, it can only, it can, it can't do that many things. It can either add stiffness to the sides because it's touching the sides. Mm. It can't add stiffness to the top or back because it's mm. not touching the top or back. Or it can add mass to the sides or a bit of both. Mm. I thought the sides don't make any difference, not much difference at all in terms of stiffness. Uh, not to the natural frequency of the top, so it must be something to do with the mass. So I got another guitar, <clears throat> a whole bucket of 50-cent pieces and a slab of blue tack, and blue tacked 50-cent pieces all over the outside of the guitar to make the sides heavier, and basically got the same effect. So <clears throat> that was adding no stiffness yeah. and only adding mass. Yeah. So it's definitely a mass effect. Mm. And it's effectively what it is, what's happening is that um, when you excite the top of a guitar with a string, uh, you need a momentum, equilibri momentum equilibrium to take place. So you have in the middle of the soundboard, the bridge in the center of the soundboard moving up and down. If you think about it, you may have seen the Kladni patterns, which are a ring of... Um, your tea leaves about 30 millimeters inside from the edge of the guitar that's a node so you know it's not moving there mm -hmm. but it is moving outside mm. of that so what that first main top mode is is actually a concentric dipole mm. okay because you so, so that means that you're vibrating at the bridge, yeah. there's a node where it's it, the top's stationary. stationary. Yeah. And then outside of that where the, the sides join on, yeah. 
in his meaning, in antiphase. Antiphase. Because you need momentum equilibrium. Yep. Okay, so m times v of what's in the middle has got to equal m times v of what's on the outside. Now, generally, what is this outside bit? Well, basically, it's the rest of the guitar, which has quite a mm. lot of mass yep. and relatively low V, whereas the main part of the soundboard has quite low mass and a lot of V. Mm. So, <clears throat> but MV1 equals MV2, all mm -hmm. right. So if you add mass to the sides of the guitar, you accept that you upset that momentum equilibrium balance. And what happens is that node line moves outboard because you've increased the mass of the sides, <clears throat> which is which does two things. It's uh, it reduces the size of the antiphase radiating area of soundboard and increases the size of the in phase radiating radiating area of the soundboard because you're shifting the node outboard. the node line out towards the edge of the guitar. Correct. And yeah. You're yeah. having more of the soundboard activated. Yeah. So that does two things. It makes the guitar louder because you've got more in-phase radiating it, more in-phase radiating surface and less anti-phase radiating surface subtracting from it. And uh, because of the increase in radiating area of the top, the effective area, the effective mass of the top increases. So the resonant frequency drops. Yeah. Okay. So by adding mass to the sides of the guitar, you can tune the resonant frequency at the top, and that's a very powerful way of doing things because it means you can change the frequency at the top without really adding extra mass to the structure, mm. without changing the stiffness of the structure, without carbon braces, which is problematic when you've got carbon fiber in there uh, anyway, uh, and uh, it's reversible because mm. you can bolt in, bolt out masses. And if the pitch of the top changes over time, you can compensate <laughs> for that. Mm. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so what about the back then? Because the back's part of the mass that's been Correct. driven. Yeah. Correct. So, so you build with heavy sides? No, we... I build with normal sides. Normal sides. But bolt lumps of weights to the sides so I can change the weight of the sides ah, to right. tune the top. Okay. Yeah. After the box has been closed, so you're you're actually then not changing the stiffness of the sides at no, all, not at all. Yeah, because it is a massive fact, as we discovered when I blew tight a mm. ton of fifty cent pieces to the sides of the guitar. So you you've got uh, the, the mass or the thickness of the sides is the same as Typ a normal guitar. typical guitar, yeah. and the yeah. back the same. Yeah, so the back mm. and the sides are just normal. Mm. Just that there's a facility there to Add extra mass. Mm. But back forms part of this couple, multiple couple, inside the guitar. So one of the uh, fascinating things about coupled resonators of any sort, whether they're uh, acoustically coupled, mechanically coupled, or electrically coupled, if you have two resonators and couple them together, the resonant frequencies repel each other. So, for example, if you have a resonant, uh, uh, a resonator with a resonant, main resonant frequency of, say, 100 hertz, and another resonator similar with a main resonant frequency at 110 hertz, and couple those together, you'll end up with a system with two resonant frequencies where the two resonant frequencies 
one is lower than the first 100 hertz, so it might be 95 hertz, and the other will be higher than the 110 mm. hertz because the resonance is repelled. That's just a fundamental of the mathematics of how coupled resonators work. So, for example, if you make the back of a guitar less stiff, you will reduce its resonant frequency. Typically, the resonant frequency of a back is pitched above the resonant frequency of the top. So as the resonant frequency of the back comes down, so will the resonant frequency of the top because they're coupled mm. by the interaction of the sides and the air inside. So you have all these indirect methods of tuning the modes of resonance of the guitar, which is important because you want to, you want to pitch them in certain places. The ones to get right are the main air resonance, the main top resonance, and uh, the main back resonance. If you got those right, you're pretty safe. Mm. Every now and again, you get some weird shit going on where you need to fix things at much higher frequencies, and there's ways of doing that as well. Mm -hmm. So there's obviously a lot of uh, science in what you do, mm -hmm. and there's also there's an element of art or craft or yep. you know, there's outside of, the, but let's call it art for the sake of, yeah, I mean, also people buy guitars largely on what they look like yeah. rather than what they sound like, irrespective of what they say. You know, <laughs> even if a guitar sounds brilliant, if it looks crap, they're not going to buy it. Yeah. So, you know, you, there is art in making it look good for sure. So now there's, there's <clears> an, I think there's an interesting interaction that happens where art and science or technology meet mm -hmm. and you get... Um, you get interesting innovation out of that and you get things out of that at that intersection that you don't that you wouldn't have found if you purely stuck to the science to the, yeah. the mathematics of it absolutely that you wouldn't find if you were, were had a purely creative artistic um take on things yeah. do you do you have uh, a take on that or, or a, a view on on what's come out in your work um at that intersection of... Yeah, because I meet that all the time because musicians are largely artists. Guitar makers are largely artists as opposed to scientists. And you know, I teach this stuff as part of what I do. And uh, I think it's probably more of a, a revelation for them because they've generally grown up through school wondering why on earth they need a quadratic equation. How is that ever going to be useful in my life? Uh, and if they get to calculus, how can that possibly be useful in my life? What is a complex number? Why on earth would that be useful in my life? But as soon as you get into acoustical engineering, you need all of those things. Yeah. And uh, so it's more of an appreciation that science has something useful to offer in their space that I perceive. And I'm just always in admiration of what these people can do, these artists can do in dreaming of things like songs and performances that I could never do. So as one of my customers said uh, to me once, he says, well, yeah, we, we need each other. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what are you most proud of that you've, done in your career? Oh, I think probably the book is a major thing I mean, it's a major piece of work writes all this down uh, it's, it's definitely 
sort of mold breaking in that um, you know it takes guitars from sort of um, a piece of um, traditional craft into the science era, explaining how yeah. things work. As a consequence of that, how you can make them better. And uh, yeah, if your objective is to go out and make a better guitar, well, for sure you better know and understand how thing works in the first yeah. place. And <clears throat> you know, that's really where I started with the whole book thing, was asking the simple question, as you did, first thing, of how does a guitar work? And getting idiocy as answers. And you sort of think, well, okay, I better kind of find out, because all I know is what's wrong. I don't know what's right yet. And, and there's a lot of books on guitar making now, and not a lot of them are delving... A lot of them are about the the practicalities or the, the craft of how do you physically yeah make there's a, a lot of books out there on guitar construction but not on guitar design or the yeah and I, I've got a couple of books which say the design and construction for example of the classical guitar and you're yeah. looking at it and it shows you maybe how to design a rosette yeah which is just graphic design and otherwise just about every book you get hold of is about uh, about build. And the the ones that say they're they're about design art. Your book yeah. uh, is uh, a two volume set um, of many pages, yeah. <laughs> Pro- so, proper volumes. <laughs> yeah, two two volumes, uh, eight hundred pages, uh, about three hundred and fifty in the design volume, four fifty in the build volume. Yeah, uh, there's probably a lot more words in the design volume because there's a lot more pictures in the build volume. Yeah. Um, starts out on uh, how strings work. If you don't know how a string works, you've got a problem working out how the string drives the soundboard, then you've got a problem working out how, yeah. how a soundboard works. Starts off with strings and how we hear, because a lot of uh, there's a lot of psychoacoustics in guitar building, so you've got to remember that what we hear is what our ears sense and then what our brain interprets it, mm. interprets it at, at. So, If you asked a computer to design a guitar that was equally uh, responsive across all the frequencies you'd end up with something that's... Yeah, there's, I mean there's a lot of things that go on which uh, make guitars sound like guitars which um, you know you can't actually measure because they're not there you know like missing fundamentals and stuff yeah. like that you know, you know you measure it's not there Yeah. So, where's it come from because <laughs> our brain puts it in for us so there's stuff like that you know the there's you know a, a loud guitar that we hear as a loud guitar won't necessarily measure as a loud guitar in terms of uh the sound pressure it puts out is any different from any other guitar mm. it appears to us as being loud it's perceived by us as being loud so why is that mm. And you've got to play to that space as well, because if you want uh, a guitar that's loud, it's not not there's not a lot of point in having one that puts out a lot of power if it's, it's not perceived as loud. Yeah. So you've got to play both ends of that. So you need. So we start off with strings and how hearing works and, and whatnot, and go through uh, panel vibrations and whatnot to uh, show how panels work, and then build up to guitars and how guitars work and then mathematical models that model I described of you with the mass loaded side to there's a four degree of freedom model in their mathematical model which takes the effect of the size the top the back and the air that's the four degrees of freedom 
um, puts it all together as coupled oscillators and works out um, how they work and their interaction with each other. And you can model, you can take the frequency response of a guitar and then model that in this model and then do things like change the mass of the side and see if that matches what you measure when you change mm. the mass of the size of the guitar. So you can calibrate the model and that works pretty well. So you can be pretty sure that all that stuff works because it's, you've sensed it, you've perceived it, you've measured it, you've modelled it. You're pretty damn sure it's there. Mm. It's, it's a real phenomenon. And that's the sort of philosophy I took through most of the book. You sort of sense something, you measure something, you're experimenting with it and try and, try and develop it and mathematically model it. And mm. It all says the same answer. You know, you're pretty right. Yeah. Move on to the next thing, and that was so, co-written with uh, Gerard Gillet. Yep. So how did that? So Gerard um, builds guitars uh, as yep. a, under Gillet guitars, yep. um, and has been doing so for since '76, longer, longer than I've been around. Yeah, since 1976. <laughs> so, so how did that? Uh, how did the two of you end up collaborating on that? Well, when I built the first guitar that I built. I was living in a flat in Woolwich because I was over here basically uh, on secondment, just got a flight, expected to be moving back in the UK, uh, then stayed in that flat for a while. All my tools and workshop were still in the UK. Yeah. So I was wanting to build a guitar with basically no workshop or tools. So I thought, hmm, <laughs> let's, uh, let's see uh, what we can do about this. And um, came across Gerard, who was uh, basically giving guitar building lessons. And that's how I met Gerard. Um, <clears throat> not so much because I needed to know how to build something like a guitar. The woodwork was no problem. Mm. I needed is to be able to borrow his workshop and use his workshop. And we got into, uh, you know, all credit to uh, Gerard in, in that uh, he let me build what I wanted to build, which was a pretty uh, unusual guitar because, remember, I built that first guitar to test the intonation mm. theory. So it was all a bit out of whack but it's sort of so sounds like you know what you're doing so <laughs> get on with it so so uh i built that first one in gerard's place mm. yeah then uh, imported the workshop so from the uk and uh, built most of the others since uh here mm. in my shed can you tell me about uh, a failure in your work? What you what you what 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 that failure looks like, and, and then well, what hanging, you actually hanging take on the, out of it? It's actually hanging on the wall there, I suppose. Is um, it actually uh, it's 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 a guitar I built, which was my first departure from standard guitars, and I thought, well, let's build a guitar with a big cutaway. Um, brace it differently and uh, see see how it works out. So it's a triple O size guitar with deep cutaway that's lattice braced, carbon fibre in it. Um, a very unusual arrangement for the upper transverse brace, bolt on neck, standard my standard intonation solution, which is intonated, not in subtle and worked out uh, and, and then figure out how, how it sounds after that. And the learning from that was that, well, actually, if you wanted to sound like 
a reasonable guitar, there's quite a lot of design work goes into it. Um, you can't expect, you know, if, if you're building a traditional guitar, you can copy dimensions and within mm. reason it'll come out something like right. Yeah. If you're building something that's completely different, both structurally and fairly different acoustically, you need to know what you're doing for it to come out right. And I didn't know what I was doing when I built that guitar. Yeah, changed a lot of variables all in one hit. And, uh... Yeah, but I mean, what it pointed out was the fact, well, if you're going to do this, you'd better figure out how it works. Yeah. You know? So that was the, it was a sort of mistake in that it wasn't a very good guitar, but it was also the impetus to say, well, you better figure out what's going on here. Yeah. If you're going to build one of these and have it right first time. Mm. So that sort of, made me pose the, the sort of questions, well, how, how the hell do these things work? And uh, so that was really the third or fourth guitar. I built, I built three three more or less in parallel. So I built the first one, then that built three in parallel. So I went to the same third or fourth, who knows? Because they all sort of start and finishes, finish more or less the same time. All different guitars, three of which are there, actually. And... Um, and so that really forced me to uh, ask questions, how do these things work? Uh, and having basically designed my first guitar there with the different bracing and all the rest of it, was uh, a question, well, okay, we need some procedures for designing these things to get them to come out right. So let's have a go at that. Mm. So what does the, the future hold for you? What do you still want to do? Well, I think guitar design is still a pretty active area. Mm. And so um, it'd be nice to have somebody take that up because, yes, there's quite a lot in the books. But when we look at what could be in the books, it's only about half as much mm. as, well, it's only about half as much as I know. And like Gerard has been around a lot longer doing this sort of mm. thing, a lot longer than I have. So there's, you know, the books could easily be two or three times big um, so there's a lot more that could go in there but it'd be nice to have somebody with the the mix of the sort of science background and the practical woodworking craft background to be able to carry on in this uh, area and keep pushing the boundaries forward because there's still a lot we don't know about how guitars work mm. and could develop mm. um so you obviously play guitar. A little bit. Play any other instruments? Did you do? <laughs> <laughs> what, what effect do you think, is, is that driven, I mean, you've obviously done a lot of different things yeah. through, through your life, um, career-wise, work-wise. Um, what impact or influence do you think music has had on your life? Oh, well, it's, it's been all pervasive. I mean... Um... I grew up through the 60s, so that's Beatles and Stones and 70s, Pink Floyd. And so, you know, there's... Well, I, I really don't know what's going on in the music scene, but I can tell you something. It's probably nothing like as drastic as Beatles, Stones, Floyd and all the other bands around that time that really um, changed society, really, for one mm. of a, a better expression. And so music was really all pervasive for my generation and um, possibly less so for 
more recent generations, not really sure. Um, so, you know, it was, uh, <clears throat> it was something that's just, you did. You know? yeah. In everything. In everything, yeah. Yeah, you just mu- music sort of infiltrated most things you did. You know? Yeah. Somehow or other. Uh, Last question. If you were to give one piece of advice to someone who was going out to make or design and to make a, an instrument, a guitar, yeah. what would that one piece of advice be? Buy a good book. <laughs> <laughs> Called Contemporary Acoustic Guitar Design and Build because it will save you unlearning a load of crap that you will pick up from elsewhere and it will give you a 70-year head start on anybody else in the industry. It's <laughs> a good start. Well, Trevor Gore, thanks for your time. No problem. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Trevor Gore at goreguitars.com.au. The website has details on some of the stores that stock his instruments as well as how to order the book Contemporary Acoustic Design Build. For more information on past episodes or to send me feedback or suggestions, you can visit talkingacoustics.com.